0: What would you like the power to do? Mobile banking requires downloading the app and is only available for select devices. Message and data rates may apply. Bank of America and a member FDSE. How would you like to ramp up your club's game day atmosphere? Big Screen Video is giving 10 lucky sports clubs the chance to win a $10,000 grant towards their own digital scoreboard. Register now at iCanWin.com.au slash BSV.
1: On 882 6PR, inspiring stories for Barra and O'Day. WA's family-owned funeral directors. Hello, my name is Tim McMillan.
2: Welcome to another episode of Inspiring Stories brought to you by Bower and O'Day, doing ordinary things extraordinarily well. Uh, My guest in this episode of Inspiring Stories uh, is many things. He's a company director, a management consultant, a writer. Uh, He has been involved in much of this state's sporting success uh, over the years, which we'll tell you about in some detail over the next hour or so. But there is so much more, uh, to the story of my guest for this episode. So it's with great pleasure. I say hello and welcome to Nick Marvin.
0: Oh, good afternoon, Tim. Good evening, Tim. And good evening to your listeners as well. Thank you for joining us. Pleasure.
2: Uh, Nick, we'll, we'll get to, you know, your, your time, uh, as part of the Wildcats and, and the Lynx and more recently, uh, teaming up with, uh, Twiggy Forrest for his, uh, his rugby endeavors. But, uh, Tell us about uh, the the early days of Nick Marvin. You were born in India. Uh, what do you re- recall of your childhood there?
0: Well, it's a great story. I was born almost two and a half months premature in nineteen sixty nine. Two
2: and a half months. Yeah. Goodness.
0: My my mother had a slip up trying to set up a Christmas nativity set, and <laughs> and uh, I was meant to be born in February or late Feb, and she had to be rushed to hospital and. In 1969, two and a half months premature is is pretty much a a very difficult chance of of survival. And I was very lucky, though, blessed that the particular doctor in charge was uh, interested or a specialist in in, in premature births, and so I survived. Incredible. And uh, and then was sick most of my life and had two uh, bouts of typhoid as a young teenager, and, and, and for those of you who don't know, it's not a great disease, it's a, it's a symptom of poverty, and second time around, it's, it can be quite fatal. So ever since, I guess, at the age of 14, I've always felt lucky to be alive.
2: Wow. Mm. Uh, and, and I suppose looking back um, on your childhood and, and considering the way you go about, you know, your, uh, the way you conduct yourself, I suppose, in, in a, a corporate environment, how much of that can we trace back to those early days in India, do you think?
0: I think almost all of it, you know, you, when you truly, genuinely believe that you're lucky to be alive and life is a gift, I think you do two or three things. One of them is that you make the most of every opportunity. Mm. Um, two, you respect other people's lives mm. and the, the sanctity of human life and that every human being, regardless of who they are and what they do, that they have their own aspirations. that yeah. To them, they're important and they want to live and love and learn um, and contribute and leave a legacy and, and i think that's probably the greatest lesson of my life yeah that in a land of a billion people that every single one of those billion people has an aspirational yeah. goal to do more than just breathe
2: and what was your aspiration as a young lad
0: to be frank with you survival you know we we um we had no running water you had to you had to walk down you know half a kilometer to go and get a pot of drinking water or two um we didn't have a fridge, you know, sporadic electricity, and I was the poorest kid in school. And but my parents put everything they had to send us to school, and and I wasn't a great student either. So <laughs> here I was, um, not 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 athletic, um, but but then we got an opportunity to come to Australia, which was yeah. life changing, you know. And and some and that's a conversation for another day. But I think I think that the people that come here, um, especially those that have had it tough have a much better understanding of how lucky we are
2: Yeah, in this great country. Of yeah. uh, so at what age were you when you
0: came? I was 18. Australia? You were 18. An adult, yeah. Yeah, yeah. And uh, arrived in Australia in Melbourne. Yeah. Um, the whole family? The whole family. And uh, my sister was sent off to an uncle's house to go to school. And my brother and I and my mum and dad had to go to get a job. You know, we were living in one bedroom of my aunt's two-bedroom unit yeah and she her husband and her son and she was pregnant lived in the other bedroom and I think we lived there for six months we all worked I went to Coles work full-time um, my dad worked in the factory and then I wanted to get back to school and, and they said you got to go back and do two years of school so I said I, I won't be doing that I'll just sit the um, the VCE or the year 12 exam which I did in Melbourne yeah and then went to uni after that yeah okay um,
2: and then over to the west
0: what brought you over here it was interesting. My wife and I, we, we had a couple of miscarriages and one of them was quite late term. So uh, it was tough. I had a consulting firm in Melbourne. We had about 12 staff. I was doing a lot of travel to America and we just thought we need a break. We need a change and we had an opportunity to sell out. And I was consulting to a public company that was involved mm. in technology and uh, they said, look, we bought these six companies in Perth and they're not doing very well. So I said, look, Why don't we make a change? Yeah. And so we left. We got a one-way ticket to Perth. My family had never been here. Yeah. And we sold our house in about four weeks. And in 2005, we moved to Perth and never looked back. Yeah. Well, haven't you just? Yeah. Because, uh, you know, since then, it's
2: just been uh, an extraordinary story of of success and and triumph, particularly, I suppose, uh, with the Wildcats. What initially... Attracted you to the Wildcats, which was already a pretty successful franchise. But you know, when you were there, arguably they're most successful. So, what what initially opened the door to the Wildcats for you?
0: One of the companies that I was looking after was a sponsor of the Perth Wildcats. Yeah, and Andrew Vlahov was managing the club then on his own, and and I remember we we tried to get out of it, and he came and saw me as he always does and talked me into it. Yeah. And said things were tough. And so um, started going to the games, fell in love with the sport. I'd never been to a basketball game. I was going to
2: oh, ask, did you have a prior love of, of no basketball? Idea. No
0: idea. No idea. And uh, started going to the games and fell in love with it. Yeah. And uh, got a friend, few friends together and I said, hey, you know, we should get involved and try and help out. And by the time we would got in front of Andrew again, that weekend, Jack had uh, Jack Bender had bought the club. Mm. Um, and Andrew said, look, we why don't you come see Jack? Maybe you can come and, you know, work at the club. And, and so that's how it came about. I had had no sporting experience prior to that. So obviously Jack saw something in you. Do you recall that first conversation you had with Jack Bender? Yeah, my first meeting with Jack was uh, was at a briefing um, for, the, for the Perth Arena. My very right. first day, I, I had to go and meet Jack. He said, well, I'll see you down at um, Crown Casino, I think. Burswood Casino at the time and there was yeah. a briefing about Perth Arena and that's when I met him and that's when the big conversation started about the car park you know? yeah. and, and there was no car parking at Perth Arena and Jack said, we need car parking and they said, we can't afford it and he said, I'll, I'll build a car park Yeah, and uh, I'll lease it out, you don't have to pay for it and uh, that was my first lesson from Jack after the briefing, he said, well, the arena is going to be full 40 days a year, the yeah. car park's going to be full every day of the year, Mm. And I knew then that I was going to get a lot of uh, life and business lessons from Jack, yeah, and what was meant to be a six months consulting role ended up being eleven years
2: yeah and talk us through the various you know roles and and uh, the the proudest achievements uh at your time there at the cats I mean I suppose transitioning from um, where you were playing in, into the arena, yeah. which is vastly bigger yeah. uh, and convincing I suppose the league that you had the supporters to fill that or, or to go close to filling that was one of the challenges, yeah?
0: I think the, the biggest lesson I learned was that good management principles can roll into any industry, mm. you know, and and my first three years were tough. They were really tough because um, Andrew was running the club and, you know, and, and I had a certain view about how to do things, which wasn't necessarily the right way. I didn't know. And, you know, you've got this, Great brand of success over so many years. Um, but then the tipping point was in March 2009 when the league was in, in real crisis and yep. the Wildcats were in, you know, we'd lost almost $8 million in those preceding three years. It had been almost 10 years before we won a championship. And Jack was on a boat in Europe and he'd rung me to say, shut the club down. Really? and And I said, sure. And I met with the players and realized that they had no transferable skills. Yeah. And some of them have never filled out a CV. And, and that was a life-changing moment for me. Yeah. Because um, I, I rang Jack back and said, we're not doing this. And he said, I'm not losing. I'm not having that much fun. I said, look, what? what if I found a way that you don't lose any more money? Can we keep this club going? And he said, well, if we do, it'll be on you. <laughs> <laughs> And uh, that's a bit of pressure it is but you know I was I think I was um, 37 at the time and you know you you seem to be a little bit more bulletproof and you know infallible at that age and so I said no you're on and um, and the rest was history yeah so we had a blank sheet of canvas and we had an opportunity for me to say look simple management principles is what we're going to roll with. forget yeah. about sport and we changed the structure we sacked the coach one of my good friends first decision was to sack coach um, and then call the players in and say, "Look, we're changing our DNA from today. Mm. We're going to be focused on, on a different set of values. Mm. You know, we're not going to follow this one-dimensional pursuit of success on mm. the field because you're not going to win. Yep. We're going to change the world. Yep. And there was a gap. There was a gap in the market at that time. It was a big. It was a big deal in Perth about, um, you know, drug usage in sport, lack of male role models, and we were a challenger brand that." No one wanted to know about the Wildcats. You could yeah. give away a ticket. So we said, "Hang on. Why don't we do this? Why don't we become the Wiggles of sport?" You know. And so I brought what I thought was my management knowledge, and say, "There's a gap in the market. Why don't we pursue this avenue and let's rebuild this brand and the way we do things to suit that?" Yeah. And the rest is history.
2: Can I ask, did you use that line at the time?
0: Let's make you guys the Wiggles of sport. <laughs> I did. When, one thing I know is when you're speaking to athletes, you got to make it real simple. <laughs> yeah.
2: Hold that thought, Nick. I want to talk to you more about this uh, this cultural revolution that you are a part of uh, at the Wildcats and why it is so important to you. We need to to uh, to go to a break though. Nick Marvin is our special guest in this edition of WA's Inspiring Stories here on eight eighty two six BR. Back with more in a moment.
1: You're listening to Inspiring Stories for Barra and O'Day, generations of excellence since 1888. This is Inspiring Stories with Tim McMillan on 882 6 br brought to you by Barra and O'Day. Welcome back to Inspiring Stories. Nick Marvin is our special guest.
2: And Nick, I'm keen to talk to you about your involvement with Andrew Forrest and World Series rugby uh, a little bit later. But let's talk more about the Wildcats because you spent what about 11 years there, uh, mid-2006 to about mid-2017. It's a decent stint there. You you were talking before about how the club was in so much trouble and really the league was in a lot of trouble, wasn't it? Um, You've had to come in and basically not start from scratch but start something new. Um, How did you go convincing you know, everyone from players to staff, admin, management, that this was necessary and that this was the right way forward?
0: I think it was a lot easier because we were on the bones of our, yeah. We we were were down and out. And so listening to a new voice was the only alternative. There is no way, I don't believe, that that voice would have been heard if we were A, successful, or B, we had an alternative plan. Uh, Because even in my first Few years and even till now, you you still constantly get the remark that you know you don't you're not a sporting guy. You know, I didn't play SBL and NBL and then move into administration mm. or similar pathways with AFL or rugby or hockey or any of those. I'm an outsider, not just to the sport. I didn't even play sport. Yeah, you know, and and so to come in and have a voice, um, it, it it's hard. It's hard, but we had no other choice. Yeah, and and so I uh, I think. My goal then was to say, just trust me on this one. I'll I'll take the risk, but just just follow me and give it a crack. And if it doesn't work, we have lost nothing. And how did you go? Did they line up behind you pretty quickly? Not really. Um, quite a few players left. Yeah. Um, I remember having a conversation with a couple of um, players, West Australians, who really struggled with the concept, and 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 I made a because you have a lot of voices in sport Just, why, why was that what was, the, what was the problem that i had because i don't think they understood what we needed to do to get back yeah uh, you know um success takes a lot of hard work and it takes um hours of persistence at something you got to beat the rock and beat the rock and beat the rock and then one day that rock cracks and so um, it's it's not easy, right? And so hmm. you walk into a room, this Indian guy has no sporting experience comes in and says, you know what? Last year we did 12 school visits. Well, this year we're going to do 100 and next year we're going to do 200. And from this year, if you want to be a wildcat, you've got to do 350 hours in the community. Yeah. Now, we were averaging 25 or 30 hours in the community. Yeah. So immediately you would think, people looked at me and said, this is stupid, you know. Um, and I said, guys, we have got to change the way we act around here. I said, we've we got to subscribe to good manners, no swearing. And I remember you know, Olympians, athletes saying, what are you talking about? What's that got to do yeah. with winning
2: yeah. basketball trophies? Yeah. And,
0: and, you know, it's a simple management concept. If you're in a high-risk, high-stress environment, you need something that keeps the wheels greased, and that's good manners. The last thing you want when you're in a high-stress environment is your manager to yell at you or swear at you. You're not going to perform. Mm. The lights are on. And mm. and I explained it that way. I said, I'm not being ridiculous here. There is a reason for why I'm suggesting this. If we actually showed good manners and trusted each other and, and, and stopped swearing, now you're in a safe environment. So make a mistake. It's okay. Learn from it. Let's go again. There's absolutely nothing wrong with making mistakes. There's a lot of things wrong with bad manners, with Mm. a lack of work ethic, about not caring, of course. But go ahead and make a mistake. And when you make a mistake, you're smarter than that. And we want you having made those mistakes because you're Mm. a better person for it. Mm. Um, I said no more headphones in public. And the players go, you know, basketball players love their music, you know. And so, again, what's going on here? And it's like, well, you're seven foot tall. You're standing in an airport. My seven-year-old kid is too scared of you when he looks at you. You put your headphones on. He's not going to come close to you. Now, don't forget, we're a challenger brand. We're the wiggles of sport. So take your headphones off. Kneel down when you speak to a child. Make eye contact at eye level. And we changed the way we started to work as a club. And whilst it was hard, we we won a championship in year one. Mm. That helped, Mm. right? And Mm. so I think that gave us some impetus to say, okay, maybe there's something interesting going on here and let's stick with this program. Mm. And, and now you you
2: see guys like uh, Damien Martin and, and Craig High who we've had in here uh, for one of these chats. Um, great ambassadors for the club, aren't they? And they do so much in the community. I suppose this is what you were trying to instill in the players over a decade ago.
0: Well, with Damien and Greg, you don't need to. Yeah. Uh, I think there were two great human beings who yeah. I've really enjoyed um, having the opportunity to have worked with mm. um, and you're going to always have outliers in any organisation but for the others to to explain to them that hey you know your average life of a athlete about four to six years so what are you going to do after that mm. and so the questions we asked our athletes when we signed them is like how how are you going to be remembered you know and, and for new athletes for imports. I remember James Ennis, who I love like a son, you know, and I said, How do you like to be remembered, James? And he goes, For my dunks, man It's <laughs> <laughs> like, no, James, I'm not talking about that. I said, How would you how would you like to be remembered? Yeah. And 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 again, so it's about well, what's your legacy? You know, having an impact is about having an impact on lives you've changed of people you never met. Yeah. And and so when you explain that to an athlete and say, You're a superman with a superman cape, and my son doesn't want to be like me. I don't have the superman cape on. But Damo, you have the superman cape on, and James Ennis, you do. And you only get to wear it for six years. Yeah. Right? So are you going to use your superpowers for good, or are you just going to let it ride? Because no one's going to want to know you when you hang it up. Yeah. No one's talking about the ex-players, you know. And so... When the penny dropped, it really dropped. Yeah, and, and, you know, then you'd have players come to see me about saying, hey, listen, let me go to Royal Perth. I want to go catch up with this kid I heard about. And you get people ringing up saying, Greg Hyde just put money in my parking meter because he saw an inspector walk by and parking meter expired. And, you know, Damo jumped out of a car in an accident in Melbourne and tries to save the guy out of the car. I mean, these guys are good human beings. Yeah, And people follow that in the car. And I don't think we would have got to where we did without those types of guys who bought in early. Now, remember, no one knew who Damien Martin was. When Damo arrived, he was an injured player who averaged seven points a game. But we saw something amazing in him to say, hey, I don't care about that. And we'll talk about strengths and weaknesses later if you like. We don't care that you're only you know, hitting down eight points a game. You bring so much more to an organization that's far worth far more than eight points a game.
2: Yeah, yeah. So, so given that and that transition that you were uh, bringing to the club, um, were, were you pretty confident then that transitioning also from Challenge Stadium into the, the, the much, much bigger um, Perth Arena, i call it Perth Arena because <laughs> it changes yeah. its titles from time to time, but um, you know, which has a capacity of, what, 12,000, 13,000 yeah. um, at, at its max, were you quietly confident that you had the support there given the, the the cultural change around the club were you pretty confident that, that the fans would follow you in droves and, and get bums on seats in the arena
0: I think we tripped over something unique mm. and I remember being asked to do a, a talk in Melbourne to some sports administrators and it was very early in the piece it was about three years in and I noticed something different because I homeschool my kids yep but, Which well, I want to ask you about later because it fascinates me. But everyone else sends their kids to school. And I tripped over this and I, I call it the defining moment yeah. right? because I'm new to sport and, and I ask a lot of questions. And if you're a kid, and if you get to a kid or under the age of 12, right, you get to a kid under the age of 12 and you have a defining moment, and that could be an athlete saying good day to him. You're giving him a sticker or a scarf or a, a T-shirt or a singlet. He's a fan for life, mm. right? And if you ask yourself. Or anyone you know, how did you become a Collingwood fan? Well, my grandfather gave me a cap. Yeah. Why did you become a – you know, I was at school. How did you become a – well, Ricky Grace came to my school when I was 12. And so we tripped over this defining moment theory and we said, hang on a tick. If, if I can get a fanful, and you've got to do a lot to stuff it up. I mean, you could be the most <laughs> losing club and you still go to the games, right? Mm-hmm. You still go, you know what, I'm going to support the Dockers until they win a championship. And so you, it, you're in for life. So you, yeah. you know all you've got to do is hit the defining moment. So we thought, hang on, what if we just, we met the most number of kids in WA that we could meet? And that's where we created these 350 hours in the community. Yep. We said, you know what? We're going to go to do 200, 250 schools a year. And every time we saw 25 kids, there's 25 Wildcats fans. Mm. And once we got momentum and we knew we were going to Perth Arena, we just put that on steroids, you know, and and so by the time we got to the end of our time at Challenge Stadium, we were sold out. Yeah, and and we just couldn't fit another person in. Mm. So we knew that we would have a reasonable fighting chance at Perth Arena. Yeah, and and
2: apart from the grassroots uh, support that you were able to foster there, um, you know, at the other end while you're trying to make the the books work for the club generally, um, a sponsorship opportunity came up with uh, the TAB, which mm-hmm. which you. Rejected. Um, Can you tell us why you did that? Because you know, I suppose for for a lot of clubs, if they're in that financial uh, position, they may be tempted to take you know a a, a somewhat controversial sponsorship opportunity up.
0: Well, we the first bit is we actually did we did take them on, and the moment we took them on, and this is why reality is so much more interesting than, than 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 fiction. And we we took them on. And it hit me so hard because we started to see inside our organisation stories of of people who have been dealing with sports gambling. Yeah. What we know about sports gambling is it's mainly targets men, right? And it's structured. It's structured at such a young age through various hybrid versions of online betting and online playing, and it, it it almost it almost grooms you into sports gambling. And we didn't know any of this back then. Yeah, they were the early days of sports gambling. So, the, so, what year are we talking about here? Oh, I want to say two thousand and ten or two thousand and nine. Yeah. yeah. So, yeah, a while back, within a year, I knew and made a mistake. Yeah. Yeah. And Paul and Jack's son, Paul Bendat, God rest his soul, was an anti-gambling campaigner. Right. And and whilst we immediately we had a conversation, he said, "This is not great." So we flew down to Melbourne caught up with him, and the penny dropped. We'd made a mistake. So we got out as soon as we can, and then mm. we spent all our time fighting it. Because mm. uh, the two greatest, the two greatest ills, I think, uh, you know, there's alcohol and sport, but far greater than that is sports gambling. And we're going to see a lot more pain and suffering.
2: I, I, when the argument comes up, I sort of get, um, I, I get a bit of both arguments. Um, you know, people who say, "Well, it's my right to choose whether I want to have a punt." I dare say they're probably not your, your problem gamblers, and it's the problem gamblers that are most at risk aren't they of getting as you say sort of seduced and groomed into this way of thinking and sort of thinking about sport as a betting opportunity have we got the balance completely wrong here in Australia between the you know the, the proliferation of, of gambling advertising and, and tempting people into gambling uh, versus the I suppose the commercial realities of high end sport?
0: Well um, I come from India which has its own history of sins in this area mm-hmm. and I've fallen into sport and whilst I think there's an argument to keep it legal, there is absolutely no argument to promote it and and I think if a sport tells you that we need sports betting money to keep the sport going, well, let's shut the sport down because it's not worth it.
2: Mm.
0: What about alcohol? I think the same of alcohol yeah i i I think again if challenges sports are harder right uh, and i think the I think we've made a We've lost our way here in WA with some of the way we've managed funding for sports that walk away from alcohol. Yeah. Um, but on face value, when you talk about the top tier sports, there shouldn't be alcohol funding in yeah. top tier sports. They don't need it. I
2: suppose a lot of the recent uh, debate around uh, commercial arrangements with sporting organisations and leagues uh, is around fast food. A Similar approach to that. Again, there's a responsibility to promote a, a healthy way of life.
0: I think the fast food um, movement may have matured yep. and tipped over. I think that regardless of how many ads you see for McDonald's and Hungry Jack's, I think we've thought ourselves like to wear a seatbelt that, you know, yeah, have it once a, once a month or so is okay, but it's just genuinely bad for you. It's got so many preservatives and it's so artificial that it's not good for you. And mm. I think we may have tipped that one over, but it's not great advertising. Mm. You know, sports people can be such great – role models for such good causes and messages that I don't think, especially the top-tier sports, need to rely on those evils. Mm. I want to ask you about the links as well as uh, your time
2: uh, with World Series Rugby, and I'm fascinated by um, your homeschooling endeavours as well, Nick. Father of six, no less, (laughs) so I, I just want to get you to share some insights into what that's like, homeschooling six kids. Uh, at your house, but we'll have to do that after a break. This is Inspiring Stories with Nick Marvin, brought to you by Barra and O'Day, back with more soon.
1: You're listening to Inspiring Stories for Barra and O'Day, generations of excellence since 1888. This is Inspiring Stories with Tim McMillan on 882 6 br brought to you by Barra and O'Day.
2: Welcome back to Inspiring Stories. Uh, in this episode, we're speaking to Nick Marvin. Uh, Nick, just before we get on to uh, your more more recent uh, endeavours with uh, Twiggy Forest uh, and rugby, can you just take us back to, I think, uh, about 2015? Um, you'd been the CEO of the Wildcats, uh, an extraordinary period of success, multiple titles. Uh, you were the chairman uh, of the league as well, uh, and yet you decided to take on a new project. Tell us about that time in your life around 2015.
0: Yeah, well, the league chairman role, and, and I don't think, I don't think uh, people appreciate how awful the league was and mm. how much uh, strife it was in and, and the work it took to, to turn it around. There were some great people involved in that, uh, including Jack's son, Paul, who was a great friend, and we had some very treasured times together during that time. Um, but we finished that, and and I was getting a bit, um, uh, you know, a bit bored, and I remember because.
2: And did you tell Jack that? Were yeah. You, were, you, were you able to tell Jack, Jack, on
0: board? Yeah, I'm, we... I'm running a club, but I'm bored. Jack and I became pretty close, and you know, he used to always call me the third child because <laughs> he had a he had a couple of major medical issues, and, sure, and and, and uh, well, Paul was in Melbourne, and and his other his daughter. Was also spending time in Melbourne because their kids were in Melbourne. Mm. So it was often Jack, Eleanor, and I. And and almost every day I'd go visit him after work and take him for a walk or have a whiskey with him and chat for an hour or so. So during these times, which were great, you know, great memories. We we talked talked about. I was getting bored, and and he said, "Well, the woman's sport was on the horizon. You know, it was starting to make movements and." the Perth women's, the West Australian women's basketball team had not really performed. Mm. So he said, why don't we acquire it and why don't we try to do with it what we did with the Wildcats? And and I did think then that, and I, as I do now, there are still some limitations commercially that need to work through, not insurpassable, but we need to work through those in women's sport. Um, and we went in with that. We knew that we would have a tough time financially. You like a challenge, don't you? Yeah. But the Wildcats were throwing enough profits to fund the women's team and cover any losses, and that's the premise we started with. We said, Mm. you know what, the worst case scenario is we'll still wipe our face, Mm. so let's go give it a crack. Mm. Um, But then Jack um, was on board, like, we got to pay them full-time wages, Mm. and it had never been done before in Australia.
2: So this is the first time ever in Australian sport that a professional – female athlete had been given a full-time, full-time wage. wage that's that's quite a landmark moment isn't it
0: it is it is for a guy that's got four daughters it was it was great i went home with my head held high because i wanted my daughters to think that they're just as good as their brothers and they could give it a crack anything they wanted to do they could give it a crack and so yeah. when we hired these these athletes and pay them a full-time wage um, and hired full-time support staff and gave them everything that the men did and every time we made a decision i benchmarked uh, benchmark was do the same as we do the, for the men yeah and, and whilst um, whilst it was difficult and costly and I got credit jack for it um I think it was well worth the exercise yeah
2: yeah um so you finish up with the wildcats uh, mid 2017 um you then sometime after that uh form a, a partnership with andrew twiggy Forrest. how did that Come about. Because I'm sensing a, a bit of a pattern here. You, you seem to be the man who turns up in a when there's a crisis or a, or a fairly significant challenge in front of a, of a sporting organisation and you're like, I mean, talk about a man with a cape, you know. Uh, you, you've almost got got your own cape there, I think, Nick. A
0: bit of luck helps. <laughs> um, so I'd, I've been trying to get out of sport. You <laughs> Not know, doing very people well. always say it's hard to get into sport. Yeah, it's so hard to get out. You know, I can't get a job interview outside of sport. But <laughs> I'd, I'd worked as a consultant for hockey and really enjoyed it. I mean, the hockey community is a great community. and, yep. and really, I very enjoyable time. And I remember a mutual friend rang me and said, am oh, Andrew's going to call you. We need you to come on board." And then I never heard from him for a while. It was like did a you, month. Did you know later. him already? Do I know? Did I know? Did Andrew? you know him prior to that? Through Jack. So right. Andrew and, uh, Andrew was a big supporter of the Lynx actually. came and watched a few games when we first bought the team. Yep. And he was always very respectful for what we did. Um, and so when this mutual friend said Andrew would call and took a month or so, and then out of the blue, as you expect, Andrew called on a Sunday. Yeah. And, uh, <laughs> I was actually having a cigar with a friend and he said, you, uh, can I see you? I said, Man, I'm having a cigar. I mean, so he, sent, <laughs> he sent one of his staff to me with me, and we chatted for about an hour and a half. And she drove back to his house and said, and told him what happened. And he said, You need to come see me. I said, I smell, I've been smoking. He said, i oh, just come over anyway. So we went over to his house and chatted for a bit. And uh, at the end of that, I started working for him. Yeah. Yeah. Uh,
2: and tell us about that period of your life, though, because I mean, a time of extraordinary upheaval and turmoil for, for rugby here in WA.
0: Yeah, quite tragic actually the way it was managed, and and I think the papers have reported very well mm. how badly it was managed.
2: Oh, shockingly! Um,
0: and without offending too many people, I think I think that if I was to generalise the state of rugby, it's in terrible, terrible. Uh, you know, it's been mismanaged. Yeah. Um, by people possibly with good intentions, I don't really know, but certainly mismanaged uh, at all levels. I think, sadly. Yeah. Um, so we arrived and we have this team and the heart of the sport you know taken out of Western Australia and Andrew has this great you know mm. such a he's the he's got the biggest heart of a man I've ever met mm. you know and he spends his whole life every working waking moment giving away money mm. that's what Andrew does and, mm. and I don't know too many people who do that with such great passion and integrity so um so it was this meeting of great values, and, and we tried to resurrect the sport, really. Yeah. And we hit a lot of brick walls. Uh, interestingly, in my experience, world rugby has been really good. Mm. Uh, and a lot of rugby nations have been amazing. You know, yeah. Fiji rugby and the Crusaders, the number one rugby team in the world. We rang them up. The chairman comes over to visit. It's like, whatever you want, guys, we're in. We'll come and play you in Perth. Yeah. And this is one of the best teams going out of their way to support this initiative. Yeah. And it was awesome. Uh, and, you know, we had to run. So in late February, we decided to go ahead. And our first game was 4th of May. So within effectively 90 days, we had to put a team together, get a venue contract in place, sell tickets, fill a venue, and put on a show, you know. And, and one of the things I I think rugby does need is it needs a better match day experience. So our focus was... How do you make this so that I want to go? And I'm not a rugby guy. And so everything we did in those 90 days was to make rugby something that you would take your family to. Yeah. Kind of like we did with basketball, but mm. outdoors. Mm. And outdoors is hard because you're playing against, I always say, one of the biggest competitors to outdoor sport, it's Netflix and rain, you know. And so it <laughs> doesn't <laughs> matter what you do, the rain's going to get you. And, and yeah. you know, we had to have all this secondary planning for if it rained.
2: Yeah. And fantastic to see the the people of Perth uh, and WA respond uh, with so much enthusiasm for it. Uh, and I loved even seeing social media light up with, uh, you know, people posting pictures of the crowds uh, going along to see the force uh, as opposed to, you know, the clubs that remained in the, you know, the, the Super Rugby League um, that had a quarter of that in much bigger cities. It was fantastic to see that as a, as a West Australian.
0: I yeah, think. the numbers are good. The numbers mm. are good and that says something about WA and, you know, and that's why I love this state and this city. I mm. mean, we are, we've arrived mm. and you can put something on and, and West Australians will show up and support it, you yep. know, authentically do so as well.
2: Yeah. Um, I want to ask you about homeschooling. I'm determined to ask you about that. I'm going to do that after the break, Nick. So that's your homework. Prepare for it. <laughs> it's coming. Uh, Nick Marvin is our special guest in this episode of Inspiring Stories. Uh, back with more here on 882 6PR very soon.
1: You're listening to Inspiring Stories for Barra and O'Day. Generations of excellence since 1888. This is Inspiring Stories with Tim McMillan on 882 6PR. Brought to you by Barra and O'Day.
2: And we are hearing the inspiring story of Nick Marvin. We've heard all about uh, your sporting experience. Uh, Accolades over the years, uh, Nick. But I'm 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 really curious to hear about uh, homeschooling six kids. How did that go? And and firstly, why, why did you homeschool?
0: Well, it has a little bit to do with my faith. Yeah, and I was, you know, I'm a terrible Catholic, but I, I try. I give it a crack every day, and my wife happens to be the same. And I remember we we met in February of 1996. And within about four weeks, we thought, oh, we sh- we're probably going to get married. And um, so we started talking about serious stuff, you know. And we got engaged, I think, about four weeks later or six weeks later, got married wow. Got married that year. Um, and during that time, my wife said, you know, if we have kids, I'd like to homeschool them. And she's from Queensland, you know, in the Sun- Sunshine Coast. And I thought, this is really hippie kind of stuff. And we should really send our kids to a real school and <laughs> what am I doing here? And so I said, I'll tell you what, I'll spend the next, till we have a child, I'll read up about it. And I did and I, I bought into it, yep. right? And and then our daughter was born, Anastasia, and I said to my wife, look, we'll give it three years. Three years from birth to three, if she can read, she stays homeschooled. If she can't read, we put her in school. And at three, she started reading. yeah and uh And so we thought, hang on this that's which is pretty good for its real yeah. world, and so we thought, well, the academic side's working, and i'd already bought into the other stuff, and that is i've always believed that it's you know quantity time at home and quality time at work i've always believed that I can't outsource parenting and teaching mm. my kids' values mm. as good as they're going to be that's not going to be me. Mm. I'd rather outsource the lawn mowing right than than actually being a dad, and so to have my kids. Whatever crazy views and values I have, to at least explain it to them and live it in front of them and have them buy into it, was the reason why i homeschooled. Mm. Now there's other issues as well with with schools, and and, and I think that um, we do we will see more and more issues with schools. And schools are a new phenomenon from the industrial revolution, right? I mean, farmers used to always homeschool their kids. It's just that we started moving into cities that we started putting kids in school. And having everyone in the same age bracket doesn't make sense to me either. Mm. Life is you're always hanging out with people of different ages. And for 10 or 12 years, to put a child in a group of kids the same age is very unnatural. And and, and there's a lot of other reasons as well. So so that's how we ended up homeschooling. And mm. my wife's a, an amazing, amazing human being. She'd have to be. For babe. the yeah. long hours that she does, yeah. not just planning the curriculum, but teaching. And then the and then the examinations and then yeah. the audits that we get from the government, which is very good. Um, and then getting them into university, you know. It's, so it's been so it's been great and yeah. and a great journey. Yeah,
2: um, you're also a, a published author. Uh, you released a book a few years ago, uh, which I'll get you to tell you about tell us about in a moment if we have time. Um, but but you also, I, I'm curious to hear about how you got a Rolling Stone writing award uh, back in the early nineties. <laughs> the early nineties. I, what, what on earth were you doing to, to get a, a Rolling Stone Writing Award, Nick Marvin?
0: Look, I was struggling with English when I came to Australia and my English teacher gave me a lot of attention, yeah. which made me fall in love with the, with the language. And so when I was at uni studying accounting, which is what my parents wanted me to do, I had this passion for writing. So I somehow got myself as the student editor for Monash University's newspaper and the same thing, I looked at the newspaper and said, I don't want to read this. It's rubbish, you know. And so I said, what if we had a lot of pop culture and youth culture and address some real issues like teenage suicide and, 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 and music? And so we 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 roll, changed the format. And, you know, advertising grew and the things, circulation went up. And we would ring up musicians and say, I want to interview, like, you know, when when MC Hammer came to town and Peter <laughs> Garrett and... And it so, so turned out that midnight all, we doing a charity concert and they agreed to do four interviews and I rang him up and said, I want to interview Peter Garrett. And again, you're 21 and you're bulletproof. And he said, yes. And so we did this great interview and his agent actually um, saw an article I did on Tommy Emanuel and said, this is a good story. It's got to go to Rolling Stone magazine. And so I said, all right, I'll send it in. And and then it won a writing award. Wow! And, and after that, it was a lot easier to get interviews <laughs> with, with rock journalists. But uh, I found myself in Hong Kong with Molly Meldrum, Richard Wilkins, and um, Christy Elias and Glenn A. Baker and myself. Wow! Covering this music conference, and after that, that, I thought that's you know, quite a quite a crew. It was. It was <laughs> great. And and after that after that trip, I thought. Mm, I don't think I can do this when I'm 50. <laughs> so I had to find a real quick way to
2: get out of being a yeah. rock journalist. What a transition from that world then to the one you're in now. So what does the future hold for you then, Nick? I know you, you're still going to have some involvement, if I'm, if I'm right, uh, with Global Rapid Rugby. Um, what, what else have you got on the cards? I, or do you not plan too, too far ahead? You, things just happen.
0: I have great faith in, in God and destiny, and, and I would like to work in a not-for-profit. Yeah, or something that has a more meaningful contribution. Yeah, I've I've enjoyed sport. Um, I will still do sport if I need to feed my family. But ideally, <laughs> ideally, I'd love to get out of sport. You know, and and do something where I can contribute more. And, yeah, and I know it's tough. Mm. And times are tough. But right now, I'm just enjoying um, hanging out with the kids. My my eldest got married uh, a couple of weeks ago, and and so sometimes life hands you a break. Mm. And for a guy that's been working full-time really since I was 18 or 19, mm. I'm enjoying this break, Yeah, but I'm also looking forward to the next chapter.
2: Yeah, fantastic. How old are the kids now? You once just got married?
0: My eldest is 20 and my youngest yeah. is four. Four? Yeah. Wow, so there's still a bit of
2: homeschooling to go. And
0: a lot of work left yeah. in me too. <laughs> <laughs> when you talk about
2: having to uh, you know, pay the bills and, and, and feed the home, yeah, you've still got a few few people and a few mouths under your roof ahead. for a few more years to come. Well, we look forward to hearing about uh, your future uh, endeavours, Nick. I'm, I'm sure you'll bring the same, same success to everything you do uh, in the years ahead. And thank you so much for coming in and sharing your story.
0: Oh, an absolute pleasure.
2: Uh, Nick Marvin, uh, that is the inspiring story uh, for today. Thank you to Bower and O'Day. Uh, everyone has a story and you can hear one every week here on 882 Six pr brought to you by Bower and O'Day. We look forward to you joining us again next time as we unearth another WA-inspiring story.